0: If you have your Bibles, you'll open them to uh, the book of Esther. Uh, again, as we have said, if you can find the book of Psalms, just uh, turn back left a little bit and you'll find the book of Esther. And uh, we will start in the eighth chapter. This has been an, a, uh, a thrilling story that we have uh, walked through these past number of weeks. And um, I, when I got to this last message, I, I thought it was a little bit like a James Bond movie. Um, I remember growing up and when James Bond first came out, first movie was Goldfinger, and then all the ones that came after that, and we still get James Bond movies. And uh, what would happen in a, like a James Bond movie or in some others similar to it, is that there's a villain and then there's James, James Bond, who has to try to take care of this villain. And the villain has usually set a bomb to go off somewhere, and, and he put a timer on it. And it starts ticking down. And when it gets to zero, then everything is going to explode. and There's going to be a tremendous loss of life. But in the midst of that, James Bond has stepped in and gets into the fight. And all of a sudden, he is one-on-one with the villain. And he's fighting the villain. And you're cheering him on. And and then somewhere in the movie, he takes care of the villain. Now, whether he takes him out or gets him arrested or whatever, but he has completely disarmed uh, the villain. And we cheer And then all of a sudden, James realizes the bomb is still ticking. And he's got to run over there and somehow get to the bomb and see if there's any way he can disarm the bomb before everything blows up. And it just keeps ticking down lower, lower, lower until he can try to get this thing disarmed. This is what Esther chapter 8 and 9 is. Because you see, when we left this story, Haman, who was the bad guy, had this edict that all these Jews were going to be killed 11 months from now. And they were going to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. And so Esther, the queen, takes her opportunity to come before the king at just the right time and disclose this to him and say, I don't know if you realize this, but you know, I'm, I'm Jewish and, uh, Mordecai's Jewish and the guy that saved your life about four years ago. And if this edict comes through, we're going to be killed and all the people are going to be killed. And then the king realizes that that's a, uh, that's a terrible idea. And, uh, as he steps out of the room, Haman begging for his life, the king comes in. He sees Haman, looks like he's accosting the queen. He arrests him immediately and they suggest that they impale him on the gallows, the same gallows that he had built to hang Mordecai. So they go over to Haman's house and they impale him on the gallows. And and that's how it ended in in chapter seven. And then when you get to chapter eight and you look at the first couple of verses, it says, and on that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king for Esther had told him what he was to her. So she finally let him know, hey, Mordecai is my cousin. He's the one that raised me. We're both of uh, Jewish descent. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. Is this not great or what? So Haman, who was very rich, very prosperous, very powerful, he, all his power, all his prosperity, it went to Mordecai. And now Mordecai was over all of that. Wow. What a change for him. And right then and there, it was a James Bond took down the villain moment. And we could have ended it right there and said, this is a great story. I love this. But the bomb's still ticking. You see, there was an edict that was issued that said in 11 months... Everyone is to rise up in the 127 provinces that go from Ethiopia to India and any person who's a Jew there to kill them, destroy, kill, and annihilate them, completely wipe out all the Jews. The bomb's still ticking. Now the villain's been taken care of, but the edict has not been taken care of. And so Esther realizes this because she's seen those James Bond movies and she knows that there's something still ticking over here. And if we don't act, this whole thing's gonna blow. And she says, we got to do something. So she comes before the king. Now, every time she's come before the king, it's been just pretty much stately. Well, here, she is weeping. I mean, she's letting all the emotions out. And you look here in verse 3. It says, and Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet, and she wept, and she pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot which he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, she rose and stood before the king. And she said... If it pleased the king. Now, now, Esther, I'll tell you, she is the queen, okay? But there's also something else about her. She is really smart, and she's been married to King Xerxes, and she knows how to, what do we say? I don't want to say manipulate. That's bad. Uh, convince. Uh, convince him uh, of, her, of her argument. And he says that if it please the king, that's great, because, you know, you don't ever want to push anything on the king. If it pleased the king, and if I found favor in his sight, okay? If you respect me and everything, if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, what I'm getting ready to say to you, if it seems right, all right? I want If it pleases you, if it seems right, if you think I'm level-headed in what I'm saying, and then her last statement is, and if all of that fails, and if I am pleasing in his eyes bottom line, am I looking good? All right. If you think I'm the Chick-fil-A that I, that you think I am, and uh, if you really love me, then you're going to do this. All right. If this pleases, if it makes sense, but bottom line, if you love me, King, this is what I think you need to do. This is what it says. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And so it would seem just from reading this that she and Mordecai would be okay. They'd get a stay. They would be the two Jews that could have lived apparently. But everyone else is going to be killed. And so she has said, how can I sit back and watch all my people be killed? Can you just revoke that edict? Well, in verse 7, it comes back, and look what what the king says. King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. Bottom line, he said, I've really done all that I can do. I've taken Haman, handed him over, we've hung him on the gallows, you're still queen, you've got all this power and stuff, Mordecai. The bottom line is, an edict to invoke death cannot be revoked. Once the king signs an edict of death, a decree of death, you cannot just send out another email and say, oh, by the way, just disregard that note. You can't do that. But he did give them an option. And he says in verse 8, He says, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So what he said is, I cannot revoke the edict of death, but what you can do is bring all the scribes together. Mordecai, you sit there, write out another one that would sort of counter that decree. And so in verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. So we're on the third month leading up to this. And he says, an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. This is the exact same wording as we see in chapter 3 when Haman wrote his, except he included the Jews. And he says, I've written this so everybody can read it. Every language, every province, every person. And he wrote in the name of the king. He sealed it with the king's signet ring. He sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. Yes. And this is what it said. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy to kill and to annihilate same wording any armed force of any people or province that may attack them children and women included and to plunder their goods on that one day the 13th of the 12th month and this copy was written into the decree and it says that the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So what they did, was well, they wrote out another edict. And they said, okay, on the 13th of the month, and it's the let's just say it's the last month of the year, 13th of the last month of the year, we sent out an edict about two and a half months ago that said you were to go and kill all the Jews. I'm sending out another edict to tell you I have given the Jews permission to defend themselves, okay? Which means if you attack them, they're not just going to sit back and let it happen. They have the right to kill you. So if you come after them, they get to protect themselves and they can take you out. Now, what you're going to realize is is that the queen is Jewish numbers two in control is jewish and we've got some power behind the throne and then and and, and and people are starting to to kind of sense this and he says you probably gonna have some people that would protect the jews so we just want to send you this decree to let you know you can't just walk into someone's house and take them out they have the right to take you out it is self-defense. It is not a decree giving the Jews the ability to go and kill anybody they don't like. It's strictly self-defense. If somebody comes after them, they are to uh, protect themselves. And if they want to, they can then plunder your house. But guess what? It's interesting. Out of all of this, they never do it. All they're doing is they're just being self-defense. It is self-defense. So some of your question may be, well, well why why do you need to send this out? I mean, it's like eight and a half, nine months until this date would happen. So just in talking terms, this is like, let's say April and it's going to happen in February. So you still got another nine, 10 months, whatever, before this happens. And Haman has been killed. So why does he need to send this out? It was interesting. Uh, A pastor in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, with the Scottish brogue, Alistair Begg, uh, commented on this, and this is his statement. If you think of Haman as Hitler, you can take Hitler out, but as long as his views have permeated the consciousness of a nation, then his removal is insufficient to prevent the Holocaust that will inevitably come. So what it means is they've already been poisoned in their mind by Haman. And even though Haman's been taken out, these people have been stewing on this. And for over 11 months, they will stew on this. And they will still want to use that edict as justification to kill the Jews. And so they said, we need to send this counter decree out. So he sends it out. Well, when he sends it out, the interesting thing about the writer of this is in verse 15 it says that Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Mordecai when the first edict went out in chapter 3 Mordecai put on sackcloth and ashes and it said the whole city was confused. Now there's this new decree and when it went out, Mordecai is styling and profiling. He's got the robe, he's got the linens, he's looking good, he's got a crown. And the whole city is rejoicing, everybody is joyful. This is a new day. We are excited, there's gladness, rejoicing. Look what happens in verse 16. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. There was happiness throughout all the land. All the Jewish people were excited. We're not going to get killed by folks indiscriminately. And so they're joyful, they're happy, and, and their feast and it's celebration. And, and just the whole town, Susa's happy. The provinces are happy. Everybody's happy. It's a great day. And it, it says that some people have even declared themselves Jewish to where they said, I want to be a part of that group. For some, it could be religious. They could say, hey, this is the monotheistic people. They just worship one God. Uh, I like this better than the polytheistic people we've got, the gods that we're worshiping, so we are come over here. Some may come just because they see the political power that the Jews have got. And they said, hey, I want to be a part of that group. But something happened to where a lot of people came on their side. And now all of a sudden, instead of being people that are supposed to go annihilate them, now they are people that are hugging on them, being a part of them. It's good. It's a good day. Because there was a counter decree that was issued. Now, you look at chapter eight and you look at something that is written that occurred maybe 2,500 years ago or so. How does, that, how does that speak to you today? I want you to write this down. We are all under a decree of death, yet God has issued a, dec- a counter decree of life. One more time. We are all under a decree of death. Yet God has issued a counter decree of life. We're all under decree of death. When you look in the Bible, you go to the Garden of Eden, and when the Garden of Eden, right there, when uh, Satan tempted the woman and it said that she ate of the fruit of the tree and then she shared it with her husband Adam, it says at that moment sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, there was a death decree that came. In Ezekiel 18.20, it says, The soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. There is a decree of death. And that decree of death has been invoked by God himself. And it is irreversible. And what that means is that every one of us is going to die physically. I don't need to convince you of that. We all one day will die physically. Physically. But it also means that we'll die spiritually. And there'll be this spiritual separation between us and God. There's a death physically and spiritually. That is what we're condemned. And it is a decree that God has given and is irrevocable. Just as the Jews were doomed to die in Persia, we are doomed to die in our sins. Now, if you just walked in this morning, you said, I am so glad I'm here. <laughs> this is such a happy message uh, that that you've got me with. Well, this is kind of the way the Jews felt. I mean, they're sitting there and they're looking at their calendar. They've got 11 months. And at the end of 11 months, they are doomed. There is a decree that's been given by a powerful king that says you're doomed to die. Every one of us, because we sin, have got this same decree. It's the decree of death. And we're all going to die physically, spiritually, separated from God. Hopeless situation. But just as Mordecai issued a counter decree of hope of life, our Heavenly Father issued a counter decree 2,000 years ago. And the counter decree he issued involved the incarnation of his Son, his Son Jesus Christ, a part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit came to earth, incarnated, 100% man, 100% God, lived among us 33 years, lived a perfect sinless life. And then he went to the cross to die for our sins. And he died for our sins so that we could have life. He took the wrath of God upon him that was due to each one of us. And what God did was he, issued a counter decree. It's found in Romans uh, five, verses eight and nine. Look at this. Romans five, eight and nine. It says, but God shows his love for us and so that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay. He died for us. Look at the next verse. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, by the shedding of his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the, what does it say? Wrath of God. We will be saved from the wrath of God. You say, what do you mean the wrath of God? The wrath of God is what God pours out on sin and evil. God does not just wink at sin. It doesn't just disappoint him. God exerts his wrath on sin and evil because he is a holy God. And so what he did was at the cross, we see that at the cross is that the love And the mercy and the justice of God were reconciled there at the cross. Because he loved us so much, but yet he had to be able to be a God of justice. And so because he's a God of justice, he's got to judge sin. So what God did was he took all the sin of all humanity, all creation, and he put them upon his son Jesus. And he poured out all of his wrath on his own son there on the cross. He poured it all out on him. Right there on the cross. And he did that because of his love for us. And because his son took the punishment that you and I should have taken. And the one that we should be taking. He took it. And for six hours suspended between heaven and earth, he took on the wrath of, of God. And paid the penalty for all of our sins. And when he physically died... He was in, removed from that cross and was placed in a tomb. And then three days later, he was raised from the dead. And God had put his stamp of approval on his son and said, you are my beloved son. You went to the cross willingly and took the sins of all humanity. And now I'm going to bring you back to life. And when I bring you back to life, what I'm telling all the world is that you are My beloved son, you are the one who's already covered the sacrifice for the sin. You can give people everlasting life. You can provide a pathway. So anybody that wants to come into the presence of God, they can now do that through the person of Jesus Christ. And then his son ascended to heaven, sitting at the right hand of the father. And one day he's coming back again. And so God has done all of this for us. He's poured that right. He's given us a counter decree of life. Folks, this is incredible news. We know we're all going to die one day. We know physically we're going to die. And we wonder what's going to happen to us into eternity. And God's very clear that if we're separated from him, we'll be separated for eternity. And he said, that's irrevocable. However, God has given us this counter decree in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, if you receive that gift, you accept this gift, then you'll spend eternity with him in heaven. And you've become adopted into the family of God. Wow. That's great news. And just as you can sit there and think that the Jews who received that decree, uh, when the messenger came by and handed it to them and it said, hey, listen, uh, you don't have to be killed or annihilated. There's hope for you. They to be thrilled. And if you're here today and, and you never made a decision for Christ You're sitting here with a death sentence on you. And now all of a sudden you just heard great news about this counter decree and say, there's hope for you. There is hope. There's hope in this, in this life. And then there's hope in life to come. That's great news. Well, that takes you to the second point. That's this. And that's, we are the messengers of God's decree, have a sense of urgency. We are the messengers of God's decree, have a sense of urgency you know, I I thought about this reading about it. As soon as they wrote it, look what happened in verse 10. It says, as soon as they wrote these letters, it says, then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses. (laughs) So he made sure you knew it was a swift horse. I didn't get the old nags over here, the old mares that just can't get along very well. I didn't bring out the donkeys or something and say, you guys just make your way over there. I got you the swift horses. I want the best ones that came from the king. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says this. And he says, so the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service. And they rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. They were urged by the king's command. They rode out hurriedly. This is incredible. We got good news. And, And all of a sudden... They write up this edict. You can just see the guys when they're in the room and they're writing up the edict and they're, and they're and they're trying to see how can we overcome this this bad thing that's been done. And, and when they write it up, they say this makes great sense. This gives a lot of people good hope. This is good. This is great news. And Mordecai says, "Get the fastest horses. Get your best couriers. Let's get this thing out." And you know what it said? They did. It says they they got on the swift horses and they hurriedly went out. Why? Urged by the king's command urged by the king's command when they saw it they went after it listen this is good news that we proclaim every sunday when we come here and worship this is the good news of the gospel of jesus christ and it's something we need to urgently go and tell others what was the big urgency what was the big hurry why did they rush out there my goodness i mean they got eight and a half months probably before the edict would would happen to where people would try to kill them why don't we just hold on to that news? Maybe tell them a month before. Why do we need to get the news to them now? Well, you just process it in your own mind. Wouldn't you want to know now? These are people who are hopeless. Now all of a sudden, they get this new hope. There's this new decree. There's hope for them. These are people who are discouraged. Now all of a sudden, they get this new decree, and they say, I'm kind of pumped up about this. These are people who saw no future. Now all of a sudden they've got this decree and they see a whole new future. Their whole life has been changed. Their whole outlook on life has been changed all because of this counter decree. And so when the messengers, the, the men who were chosen to do this, when they got the message, they hurriedly went out there, urged by the king's command because they wanted them to experience this hope, this joy, and this future. This is for us as believers. We are to be urged by the command of our Lord. We're to take this good news that we've just talked about, and we need to have a desire to share wherever we are and wherever we go. And whether it be in our community, in our city, in our state, in our nation, in our world, this is an urgency that we are to have. You don't just want to wait on this. I mean, again, we you never know how long someone has to live. We understand that. But just on the other hand, if you've got good news and, and they're walking in a godless direction of their life that has no purpose and, and there's pain and there's heartache and they really don't have any idea who they can turn to or where they can turn, why would you want to hold on to that and say, you know, maybe we'll just wait a while to share that with them? It's good news. <laughs> this is what we need to tell people, and people all around us are hurting. Uh, this this week, I we had a man from Mexico that was uh, spraying our fence. It was staining our fence, and, and as he finished, and the, it was getting dark at night, and I had my checkbook out there ready to write the check, and he gave me his name, and uh, and he said, uh, "I understand you're a preacher." Now oh, that's scary. Huh? so do I look like that. I mean, what, what did I do and anything? And then I found out Janice told him. I said, okay, good. All right. Uh, he says, you're a pastor. I said, yeah, I am. And he begins to open up his heart to me. I think he's talking about his family situation and all these other things going on. And he, he's just, his world is like a ball of confusion. And it was just great to have an opportunity to at least talk to him a little bit about God. And then, uh, over these next few weeks to take some next steps to get him connected with someone to talk to him over here. And, uh, but it's just right there. It's every, people we run into, people we rub shoulders with, Th- their world, they're, they're hurting. And, and we've got this good news, and we should be like these messengers with urgency. Get on the swift horse urgently. Why do you do it? Urge by the king's command. Urge by the king's command. This is good news. Well, they went out there and they gave the good news. Now, I'm just thinking that if I'm one of those Jewish people that receive this and it says, hey, just want to let you know you can defend yourself. Anybody comes after you, you can take them out. Well, I'm thinking, okay, I think we're good. I I I just don't think many people would want to come and attack us now because we're not just poor and defenseless. Mm. That's why you have chapter nine. Are you ready? (laughs) Chapter nine. He says, now in the 12th month, this is it. Time has elapsed. Now we're on that day. It's the month of Adar, the 13th day. This is the day, the edict, when everybody's supposed to kill and annihilate the Jews on there. And he said, when the king's command and edict were to be carried out on that very day, the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gather in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. Now over these eight months, see what, look what happened. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. You see that one more time? All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents, they also helped the Jews. So, I mean, the person that was the mayor and the city council and, and the people of great uh, note there in that cities and all those different provinces, they helped the Jews. Man, they were for them. They, we we love the queen. We love Mordecai. We're, we're for you over here. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame had spread throughout all the provinces For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. And it says, and the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did as they pleased to those who hated them. And in Susa, this is the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and they also killed the 10 sons of Haman. But they laid no hand on the plunder. They didn't do any of that. They just, in self-defense, if somebody attacked them, they protected themselves. And it says that very day the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. So they reported to the king, this is the fatalities, and the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? It's like, can you give me a uh, an update on what else has been happening? And then he looks to Esther and says, now what is your wish and it shall be granted you, and what further is your request, it shall be fulfilled. And um, if you just want some entertainment, read different commentaries on how people interpret what Esther did here. And Esther said, this is sweet, Esther. If it pleased the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. Okay, you gave them one day to kill anybody that tries to kill them? Give them two days. Give them one more day. Oh, and by the way, Let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Impale them on the gallows. Okay. I got a footnote in my Bible, and no one cross Esther the rest of her days. Okay. Um, (laughs) She's a bad woman. You know, watch out, Esther. And, and, you know, the king loves her. So the king commanded this to be done. Hey, Esther wants it. Let's go. It's going to be done. And the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, I'm just going to tell you, you can read all kind of commentaries. People got crazy thoughts on it. Let me just say the truth, okay? <laughs> no. Hey, Esther's pretty smart. Haman lived in Susa. He's got followers. He's got people that, that really thought he, he's the guy that hung the moon. And they had this one day, and 500 people tried to attack Jews and were killed in there. Esther's smart enough to know that there are other people out there, and they're looking for some opportunities. And she says, you know what? Let's just give them one more day to protect themselves. And sure enough, they gave them one more day. And when they gave them one more day, it was not a license to go kill someone. It was a license to protect yourself. And so when someone comes, you take them out. Guess what? 300 people rose up, and they got taken out. He She those 10 sons of Haman?" I said, "Let's just stick them over here on these gallows." And so all of a sudden, you look back over here and say, "Man, this was this quite a battle, that you didn't get the count from all the provinces." When all the provinces count came in, it says that there were 75,000 of those who hated them and that were killed, and that relief was given to the Jews on there. 75,000 thousand. So when it was over, verse seventeen. He says, This was on the thirteenth day, and on the fourteenth day they rested, and they made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on thirteenth and on the fourteenth and they rested on the fifteenth. And he said, this is explained why some people celebrated one day of rest and somebody celebrated two days. Reason is Battles on the 13th, on the 14th, you rest if you live in the rural area. But if you're in the capital, we battled on the 13th, we battled on the 14th, and we rested on the 15th. Does that make sense? Some group rested on the 14th, some group rested on the 15th. And like any other government agency would do, they said, well, since we're going to give you a holiday, let's make it a two-day holiday and we'll make, we'll make everybody happy. And so it became a two-day holiday. And they just explained why that became a two-day holiday. And what they then talk about is a feast that is celebrated even today in the Jewish community. It's called Purim. And it says in verse 20, and Mordecai recorded these things, and he sent letters to the Jews who were in the provinces, and he says, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month and the 15th day of the same, year by year, on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, And as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And so it became a feast. And they called it Purim. And the reason they called it Purim is the word pur, P-U-R, is a Persian word. And it's the word that was used in chapter 3 and was called the casting of lots. So it was like throwing the dice. What Haman did was he got his people together and they did this thing where they cast lots and stuff to figure out what would be the best day to annihilate the Jews. And it was called Pur. But it's interesting in that that's a Persian word. The Hebrew equivalent word that is used when you try to translate it is a word that means God controls the destiny. God controls the destiny. So even though somebody may cast the dice and they think that that's controlling the destiny, actually, no. God is the one who controls the destiny. It's a double entendre where it's got two different meanings here. So when you say that word purim, you think the casting of lots, but on the other hand, the Jews are thinking, hey, You can throw the dice all you want to, but God's the one that's in control. God's the one that's going to direct what happens. No foreign power is going to direct what happens. God himself is going to direct what happens. And so we will have a feast, and every year we will celebrate, and we'll celebrate God's goodness over here. And they still celebrate this today. And uh, it's interesting when you read the history of it, of even during the Holocaust, that that the Jews when when they were there and they were gathered together they would retell the story of Esther and and it would be their hope that that God would save them but even if they died that God would preserve the nation of Israel which he did and so it's interesting that if you ever talk to someone or 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 in a place where they're reading the story they kind of respond the same way and that is as you gather people together if they Come to the feast of Purim, and they open up the Book of Esther, and they start reading it. And whenever they read the name Haman, everybody boos and hisses. Boo! Hiss! And then when they read Mordecai, everybody claps. Yay! All right! And so they get all excited about this, and and they'll read, go through the whole book. Every time Haman, boo hiss. Every time Mordecai, cheer him on there. And it's just a reminder. So what do you take from that? When you look at Purim, and you you look at, at what they're doing there are three there are two things that we pull out of that and this is what they are number 1 god is a faithful promise keeper god is a faithful promise keeper this feast began as a spontaneous response of god's people to god's omnipotent faithfulness to the promises of his covenant this is just a celebration you see every every other feast in, in the in the bible has been handed down from god this was a a, a grassroots effort It was a spontaneous response to say, God is so good. And one day I've got an irrevocable death decree. The next day I've got this decree of life. And on the day that I'm supposed to die, I'm still standing and I'm still alive. And that means that God is a faithful promise keeper. He promised through the covenant with us that there would be a Messiah. And if all the Jews were wiped out, his promises would not have come true. He is faithful to his promises. And so whenever you think about Esther, you think about Purim, you need to always think about that God is a faithful promise keeper. And just read through your scripture, and anytime time you see a promise, just circle that and know that God is a promise keeper, okay? He was a promise keeper with the nation of Israel. He's a promise keeper with us. You say, Danny, how do I know that he's a promise keeper with us? The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, when John the apostle is on Patmos, And he's on this island, and he gets a vision from the Lord, and Jesus speaks to him. And this is what Jesus says. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What more do you need? Jesus says, hey, you don't need to fear about anything. You know, John's sitting there, and he's on this island of Patmos, and and the Roman Empire is growing stronger and stronger, and they're increasing persecution on the infant church, and he's got to be worried about all that. And Jesus said, fear not. I'm the first, and I'm the last. And he says, I am the living one. I died. Behold, I'm alive forever, forevermore. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. He is a promise keeper and he'll be faithful to his promise. And the very last thing that I want you to keep in mind is what we take from this whole book. And that is this, God's providence. At times, God is hidden but never hiding. At times, God is hidden but he's never hiding. All of us go through tough times to where it seems like God is absent or God just doesn't hear. And we need to be reminded that though He may be hidden, He's not hiding. And as you can't see what's going on down here, our Heavenly Father, who is over all things, omnipotent and omniscient, is moving pieces around and is constantly working. But for us, we don't see that, and he's telling you, listen, I'm not hiding. I'm just as involved as I ever was in your life, and I ever will be, but it's just not the time to disclose some things to you. And, and for you to take this story of Esther and to not realize that the only way God can do anything in my life is through some miraculous event. Listen, if God does the miraculous in your life, praise God. He gets the honor. He gets the glory. But there's just a number of people sitting in pews who say, I hadn't seen one of those. Haven't seen one of those miracles. And what we learn from Esther is that God works through ordinary events. And when he doesn't part the waters that we want him to part, or he doesn't move the mountain that we would like to move, the song says, I will still trust him. I will still trust him. To trust him, even when he seems absent, when we can't imagine how he could possibly do what he's promised in his word, I will trust him. I want you to watch a testimony of a young couple in our church who came to this point of where it seemed like that, you know, God was um, absent and God was silent. But what they discovered is that God was hidden, but he wasn't hiding.
1: There's like different periods of time going through the adoption process. On the front end, it was all, you're crazy busy, you're swamped trying to get all this legal paperwork together, you're trying to get all these home studies done, trying to get all these background checks completed and submitted and approved. And once it's done, then it's just, okay, I'm waiting. And you wait. And you may get a phone call saying, hey, we may have an opportunity for you, but that one falls through. So you you go, okay, is this it? a little bit longer.
2: I always thought about adoption. Um, adoption to me was like this cool and sweet thing. Um, but at the same time, I would say that Paul and I had our own plans first. We met Sanford and I didn't like him at first, but we just became friends. And then it just kind of one thing led to another. And then um, a few months after we met, we began dating.
1: We ended up dating for several years and January 2009, we got married.
2: About three years into marriage, we decided, oh, this is a great time, perfect time to start a family. So we began trying to have children. About six months to a year into that, we, um, nothing happened. So we did fertility treatments for about um, a year and a half, maybe two years. And then nothing happened.
1: Just having uh, your best friend and your partner in life feeling so down and distraught and you feel almost helpless to console them or, um, you know, to even encourage them out of the state that they're in, right?
2: I remember sitting on the couch with Paul thinking, what are we doing? Like, this is, like, crazy. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking, if God wants this to happen, it will happen. And it's not happening. So, um, we always did talk about adoption in the very beginning of our marriage, and, um, and so it just brought us back to the point of, well, why are we going in one direction when we did have desire in the beginning to go a different direction?
1: It doesn't, it doesn't make sense for us to you know, constantly you know, meet with doctors and try to figure out why we can't have kids when there's lots of children everywhere who need parents. They just need someone who's willing to step up and say, hey, I'll do it.
2: God's faithfulness, come full hand, was very amazing. You're you're raising a child that needs a home, needs a forever family, who could be in a far worse situation had they had you not said yes. Um, and you're, I mean, it's the gospel.
1: You know, there's there's three things that that we pray for him. One that he ends up having faith in our Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord, and that he experiences the power of the Holy Spirit, and then three, that he understands just how much God loves him. How awesome would it be to know that you are loved so much you can't even comprehend it?
2: Had, had I gotten what, I, what we had prayed for, a biological child, um, I can't imagine missing out on Jack Thomas. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't really have a, a better word. He is God is just so good, and He writes the best stories, and His plans are better than ours.
0: God writes the best stories, and His plans are better than ours. Let me ask, bow your heads. Let me leave us a word of prayer. Heavenly Father. We recognize that um, you do write the best stories, and oftentimes it's hard for us to see that. And sometimes we're in the middle of the pages of the book; it's hard to see the end. I pray that today, that through what we've learned in the Book of Esther, that you would speak to our hearts, comfort our souls. Remind us again of your promises and that you are our promise keeper and that you are faithful and that you have an amazing love for us. And so, Father, in these next moments, as we take time to remember the expression of that great love, that you bring our hearts closer to you